the FT. Hello and welcome to this end-of-year edition of the FT's World Weekly Podcast. We're devoting this whole programme to a discussion of the major geopolitical upheaval of the year, the Arab Spring. I'm Gideon Rachman. With me are David Gardner, our international affairs editor, and Rula Khalaf, our Middle East editor. David, this whole thing got going in January of this year, and I I'm remember well remember I was in Abu Dhabi and receiving an email which was sent to many of us in the FT saying talking of President Ben Ali of Tunisia who had fled, and you said I think the precise words were the buggers scarpered so much for Arab strongmen. Uh, was was that uh, the moment when we all realised that there was something really big going on that would become a regional event? I think at that stage. You, you couldn't necessarily extrapolate to the rest of the region. I mean, it clearly put a huge dent in the armour of the Arab national security state. But I think when we really saw that it was game on, was uh, about three or four days into Tahrir Square when the security forces retreated. Um and when, uh, despite the initial repression, people just kept on pouring into the streets in their tens of thousands, at that point it was clear that this was uh, pan-regional. Mm. And really, I mean, a lot of people said, oh, well, Middle East specialists didn't see this coming. I'm not sure that's true, actually. I mean, a lot of people have been saying for a long time that the Arab world, North Africa, was failing its people, that these governments weren't stable. But... I guess we didn't see, nobody could see exactly how the, the edifice would, would begin to crumble. I think a lot of people saw the symptoms. A very young generation, a very frustrated generation, uh, no economic prospects, repression, police brutality. So whether in Tunisia, in Egypt, or you know everywhere else, I think everyone knew that at some point um, things could explode. But I think the spark, nobody foresaw. And particularly that it would be in Tunisia, uh, because Tunisia had this image of uh, having provided at least a minimum of um, improved living, living standards. And, you know, Ben Ali was praised. Uh, and the French thought that he was pro- actually providing a model for the rest of the region, you know, a repressive regime, but a regime that cared about the economy and that cared about its people, which turned out not to be true. Even the figures that we've been provided uh, were not accurate. So I think if you go back to December, because this actually started on the 17th of December, and there were two phases in in Tunisia. There was a, a first phase where the provinces were in rebellion, and then at the beginning of January, it moved uh, to the outskirts of, of Tunis. And in the beginning, uh, there were there were also protests in Algeria. And I remember very clearly that the protests in Tunisia and in Algeria did give a sense of something different going on at you know at the end of this year at the uh, at the end of last year at the beginning of of this year um and although algeria didn't develop into a a, a full blown uprising um i think that you, you you had already a sense that young people were taking matters into their own hands from very very early on and since then of course we the We've seen the revolution in Egypt. We've seen the overthrow of Gaddafi, a semi-civil war in, in, in Syria, upheavals in the Gulf, the fall of the president of Yemen, and so on. 
So the process is continuing to unfold. I mean, do you think we're looking now at a decade of upheaval in the Arab world? Well, you know, if you ask politicians in Egypt, they say they'll tell you Egypt's transition will take in itself will take uh, probably a decade. Uh, but yes, I think this is a this is a process that is, is not is that doesn't have a beginning and or or an end, and that does not have to go in the same way of in the same revolutionary way that we saw this year. There are countries like Morocco where we're seeing evolution and not revolution. Uh, I think in parts of the Gulf as well, Oman in particular, there are changes that are taking place um, that will lead to a different political system, but a lot more gradually. And these changes will take a very long time. David, over the next 12 months, say, which is probably as much as we can look forward to, what do you think the big pressure points are going to be? What, what would you guess will be the biggest stories in the Middle East? Syria, um, beyond question. Um, because of its relative centrality, because of the turn it has already taken, you mentioned, I mean... I think civil war, although the UN has, has chosen to classify it in, in that way pretty much, or at least the, the human rights outfit in the UN, um, I don't think it has reached that stage um, in, in the more than pedantic sense that, 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 that you, you need two more or less equal sides or even multiple sides for... Uh, uh, civil war, it seems to me that what has happened is that um, a stream uh, of defections has taken place from the army, a pole of resistance has been erected, which does two things. I mean, one raises the price of the regime's repression and perhaps causes some people pause for thought, but more importantly, it provides particularly as a, a international backing crystallizes around the, the, the opposition. It provides an umbrella for further defections and therefore I would have thought the tactic that they're looking at is not some sort of conventional defeat of, 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 of the Syrian uh, uh, apparatus of repression but to split the Syrian army. I remember earlier in the year when we were discussing Libya a lot, you were mm -hmm. very adamant from the beginning that Gaddafi was finished, that he would go. Mm -hmm. Would you be so bold to say the same about Assad, that, that he's finished? Absolutely, and I, I have been saying for many months. Um, there isn't a path of return for the Assads, um, nor, crucially, have they left any path of retreat for their opponents. Therefore, this has been, I would say, since the end of April, a fight to the death. The position of the Assads is eroding. They've burnt virtually every international bridge. Iran is not going to come to their rescue. It may have put in, say, initially, uh, technicians to help them monitor social media and that sort of thing. There are three to 400 revolutionary guards at their disposal inside the country and so on, but not much in the way of cash, and they're running out of cash. They're losing also because of international pressure on the regime. The regime is toxic to its business partners, some of them coerced, some of them voluntary. That is beginning to fade away. But the critical thing is that their military capacity is finite. You can't, uh, you know, alchemically rejig 
the demography of the country, which is reflected in the army. And basically, they have only two absolutely reliable, that is to say, Alawite units. Um, they cannot, they, they, they expected to finish this by the end of April. Then there was the Ramadan offensive. Each time they think they can do it, but what, what, as time goes on, what we have seen is they cannot hold down the country. Mm. Now, the minute that the opposition begins to get its act together and offer a degree of comfort to, critically, to minorities, including the Alawites, the Christians who have tended to, to, to align with, with uh, an Alawite-based regime, the, and begin to, to, to offer a coherent program, then I think you know the erosion accelerates. Hmm. The the the, the uh, cohesion, such as it is, of the army uh, uh, decomposes. Ruler, what um, what are the the regional implications of what are going on in Syria? Because I sense a degree of nervousness. The Arab League has been pretty strong, actually, in coming out and and coming condemning the Assad government, but. Uh, the Iranians obviously are close to to the Syrian government, the current Syrian government. Even the Israelis, who've you know had a very cold relationship with the Assad government, seem to be anxious about it it going. Well, for the Israelis, Assad has kept the the borders uh, quiet, and that's that's a priority for them. I mean, he's used uh, he's used proxies in in Lebanon uh, to torment Israel, but at least the border between Syria and and Israel uh, has been, in fact, the most quiet border. So, so they have an interest in having. Uh, I mean, they don't care what's uh, what's going on inside inside a, inside a country. In fact, it was very interesting that uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's deputy uh, had a briefing saying that the Arabs are simply not ready for, for democracy. He didn't say which Arabs he was talking about, <laughs> but, uh, you know. Well, Netanyahu e- Egypt, gave, a, gave a speech more or less saying the same thing, did he not? They've... Absolutely. So uh, I think the problem with Syria, and this is what everybody is, you know, th- that's the reason that we're not at a stage of any kind of uh, international intervention, is that it is, you know, it's it's a much more strategic country. It has, it has a certain power of destruction. Uh, in fact, a lot of people are now very worried about what's going on in South Lebanon because the French have openly accused the Syrian regime of stirring uh, trouble in South Lebanon and of promoting attacks on the UN peacekeeping forces. I mean, part of what, what David was describing as this apparent resilience of the regime so, so far, it has to do with the fact that they can be extremely ruthless. Mm. I mean, if you try to defect, say you're a diplomat, you try to defect, they will not only go after your parents and your children, they'll go after your cousin, your nieces, your, you know, it's the element of the risk of retaliation is one of the things that people think about when they're thinking of, you know, what do we do about Syria? Mm. The other, of course, is the risk that... Iran or Hezbollah could be drawn in if, if say, there was an intervention led by Turkey and um, and some some of the Arab countries. This is the fear: is that it will not end in Syria, but it will it will spread and it will be the spark of a of a regional confrontation. Well, what about the Gulf? I mean, another element of the Arab Spring was the uprising in Bahrain, now apparently suppressed. But of course. People look at you know old autocratic regimes. They they must look at Saudi Arabia and the stability of, of that country. What's your feeling about how the Gulf has played into the Arab Spring? 
I think that we've seen everything in the Gulf, and it's not true that you know the, the monarchies of of the Gulf have been have been immune. I think every country has reacted in some way. First of all, through financial handouts. There's been, I mean, Saudi Arabia, over $100 billion has been pledged this year. So the Saudis, I think, have bought time. They've been, they've been able to delay any kind of popular um, move uh, within, within the country. But there is a problem, uh, a brewing problem in the eastern province amongst the Shia. And we have had a series of small uh, demonstrations. So that's one thing to keep an eye on over, over the coming year. Bahrain, is, it's not over in Bahrain. Um, yes, it was crushed and the Saudis intervened. But um, th- there, is no, there has not been uh, a solution to Bahrain. And in fact, the protests are kicking off again in the Shia villages. We don't, they don't get as much attention only because they're, they can't reach, the protesters cannot reach Manama. Uh, but every Friday, the Shia, Shia villages are, um, a lot of people are on the streets um, and the crackdown is, is continuing. Oman is an interesting case. There were protests mainly against unemployment, but the Sultan has gone quite far in responding and not only with financial and economic measures, but also um, with political reforms. Okay, I think ju- just to pick up on yeah. that, if I may. I mean, just uh, ruler earlier mentioned to Morocco and so on. I mean, th- there will be no country unaffected by this. That's for sure. Uh, I think we can already see that. Um, but the responses can be different. It seems to me that you know the 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 Republican dynasty, who which have clearly uh, uh, borne the brunt of the first phase. What are the options for the monarchies and not just of the Gulf? I mean, Jordan, for example, for the, admittedly for the umpteenth time, is announcing a program of gradual movement towards constitutional monarchy. That will eventually have to be the option that Saudi Arabia contemplates. And it, it isn't as though this isn't part of the currency of debate in, in Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's a document which was asked for by King Abdullah, then Crown Prince, in 2003, which was presented to him, and which is essentially a blueprint for constitutional monarchy. It is, it, it's in the water. Okay. Uh, um, L- let me finish by looking at the kind of broader international perspective, because another significant event as the year ends is the US is pulling out of Iraq. Is this part of a general trend, the Americans pulling out of Iraq, but also the, the Arab Spring, which sees American power in retreat in the Middle East? And if it is, who's going to fill the gap? Uh, where are the outsiders uh, going, to, going to come from? Will it be Turkey? Will it be Iran? Ruler, what do you think? Well, I think the, the U.S. has been in retreat in the region for, um, for a long time. Um, the withdrawal from Iraq does, I, in my opinion, uh, particularly for Iraq itself, it does open up uh, the country to greater influence, um, greater Iranian influence. But the changes that we're seeing this year are also about Arabs taking 
um, their destiny into their own hands. So I think the time for outside powers having as much influence in the Middle East as over the past uh, few decades is, is over. Now, obviously, Egypt needs to get its act together to be able to fill the gap. And there's going to be a constant struggle over the next few years between internal challenges and projecting yourself diplomatically in in the region. This is why, for instance, it is those two elements that are allowing Qatar, for example, to play a much larger role today. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have to to leave it there for this year. So, Rula, thanks very much. And thanks also to David Gardner for your thoughts today and over the course of the year. This is the last edition of World Weekly for 2011. We'll be back in the new year. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.